Welcome to Imaginal Inspirations with me, David Lorimer. This is a podcast in which I ask my guests about experiences, people, and books that have inspired their life and work. And today, my guest is my old friend, Anne Baring. Um, we used to live quite close to each other. She's author and co-author of seven books. Her most recent book was published in 2013. It's A Dream of the Cosmos, A Quest for the Soul. And this was awarded the Scientific and Medical Network Book Prize for that year. She's also written a book for children, The Birds Who Flew Beyond Time, which was first published in 1993. And this is based on the Sufi text, The Conference of the Birds, and was illustrated by our mutual friend, the late Thetis Blacker. The ground of all Anne's work is a deep interest in history, as well as the spiritual, mythological, shamanic, and artistic traditions of different cultures. Her work is devoted to the affirmation of a new vision of reality and the issues facing us at this time of crucial choice. And she lives near Winchester um, with her husband, the artist Robin Baring. So Anne, it's lovely to have you on the podcast today. And I'd like to begin by asking you about a, a shaping moment involving your choice of work. Well, I think the shaping moment was when I went up for my interview to St Hilda's College in Oxford. And there were two tutors there, one the English tutor and the other the modern history tutor. And uh, they said to me, we would both like you to read I mean, history or literature. Which would you choose? And I said, I will choose history because I think it gives me a wider scope to explore what really interests me. And also, I don't want to learn Anglo-Saxon, which I'd have to do for the English literature course. So that was, I got taken on for, for the modern history course. And um, that was the beginning, really, of my explorations into history, taking me back into archaic history, eventually Sumerian history, Egyptian history, you know, the really ancient civilizations. But I didn't know that at the time. I was only 18 or something. I had no idea what my life would be or how it would unfold. And that goes a lot further back than the kind of history that you would learn in Oxford, which is more medieval and modern history. I thought that would be a beginning, and I did Renaissance history as well. It was medieval and Renaissance because I loved Italy and because I already could speak a bit of Italian. So that was the way to go, so to speak. And medieval history I was interested in because of the Knights Templar and the Grail, because I already knew about those through my mother. So that was a good beginning, very good beginning. Yes, and, and that obviously important background. Did you have a, an influential mentor just helping you to unfold your understanding, which then led into your work? No, I found my way by roundabout paths and it took a very long time until my 60s really to, to get going into my real interests. There was a great voyage to the East, which I'll come to in a minute. And there was all the repercussions from that and the writing of my first book called The One Work, The Journey Towards the Self, which was published in 1960. So um, that was the result of those journeys to the East. So you were only 29 at that time? Yes. And then I, I think you mentioned um, a little later the influence of Hella Adler um, as someone uh, who was important in your overall development. Yes, because I suffered from depression. I had depressions from the age of about 13 or 14. I now understand why, but at the time I didn't. And eventually it took me into analysis with somebody called Alan McGlashan. And I stayed with him for 11 years. 
And then I applied to be an analyst with Gerhard Adler because it was thought there was a good idea that I could do that. And he recommended that I should work with his wife, Ahela Adler, before I could be accepted to train as a Jungian analyst. So I did seven years of training, Jungian analyst training, plus two years with her. So altogether, I've had 22 years of, of Jungian analysis with two different people. But she taught me about the feminine, and really she took me into the unconscious. She took me really deep into the causal loss of the feminine. And I owe a great deal to her. Obviously, that's very important for your later work. And so in a, in a sense, you, you would have had to make that journey in order to reach the depth of understanding that you have. Absolutely. And it was with her that I had my three really big dreams and which pointed me in the direction that I should go, which was in recovering the feminine. Um, Would you like to mention one of those at this point? um, Well, very briefly, two of them. The first one was a journey to the moon. When I got to the moon, there was an enormous thing like the Eiffel Tower on top of it, a great iron structure, and the moon itself was completely dead. No life, no animals, no people, no nothing. And I found myself in some sort of vehicle, and then I was dumped in a pool of water at the end, which, of course, as a Jungian, I would know, which, which was the entry into the unconscious. Yes. That was the first opening dream when I moved from my first analyst to Hella Adler. And then the big dream was when I was about 45, I suppose. It was that I was in a great field of corn entering into another dimension. And the corn was green like it is in early spring. And I came to a valley between two hills, and on each hill there was a a man standing, an archetypal man standing with a huge net stretching right across the valley. And I was caught in the net, and I had to lie on my back looking up at the cosmos, which was dark and night. And I saw this figure of of an archetypal woman manifesting to me with a great wheel in her abdomen. And she told me to look down at my abdomen, and I had the same small wheel, but it was too far to the left. And she indicated I was to move it to the center. And that was to be my work. But those were the two major dreams I had, which um, brought me in touch with the feminine. Yes, I mean, that's so powerful. And a lot of us don't pay enough attention to dreams. Not Not that we all have dreams of that power. And then coming on to influential books, Anne, what would you choose there? Jung's Modern Man in Search of a Soul, which I was ill in hospital for a few weeks, and and my husband, Robin, read it to me while I was there. And we shared that interest in in Jung and that discovery of Jung. And we were actually planning to go and visit him in (laughs) Zurich in a very inflated sort of way when he died. So that was the end of that. But he was a huge influence from that time on. This was not long into our marriage, maybe 1962 or something like that. We married in 1960. And the other one was Joseph Campbell, The Masks of God, which was a huge influence on my historical exploration of ancient civilizations. And it was extraordinary work that was. And I'm so grateful to his existence that he opened so much. And he also in his books that Jules and I followed in writing about the Paleolithic, they were the major influence on us in the myth of the goddess. So interesting also that you mentioned Jung's uh, Modern Man in Search of a Soul, because that's the first book I bought and then read when when I was probably in my early 20s. And I went abroad for a year with four boxes of books. 
Yeah. And that, that, that really opened me up to Jung, and I was lucky enough to inherit his complete work. That was very lucky, yes. Yes, from a mentor who, who and many other books as, along with that. So, yes, I mean, books are important for us uh, writers. Very, very important. And they actually, I think the right books come at the right time. And obviously, that came in the right time of your life and the right time of mine. And it's as if I feel as an invisible hand guiding both our lives and many people's lives so that things happen when they're meant to happen at the stage of life in which one is ready for them to happen. Yes, I think this is the unfolding of life and also the trust in that process, which I also talk about with Richard Tarnas in in my interview with him. And then what about another or particular key moment of insight in relation to your work and, and the nature of consciousness? Well, a huge influence on my whole life were channeled messages that my mother received, starting when I was about 11. I had an out-of-the-body experience when I was 11. The messages that followed, both for me and for her, opened up a whole scenario that I had no inkling of before that out-of-the-body experience. They really were messages that were saying that the world was in great crisis. This was in 1944, I think, something like that. Humanity was in great danger because it was on the wrong path. And if it didn't right itself, there would be catastrophes in the future of unimaginable power. And it gave descriptions of what sort of catastrophes would happen. So this out-of-the-body experience showed me that there was more to life than my conscious mind, that there was a whole sphere that needed exploration and acknowledgement. I took it as a teaching thing, although it was very frightening at the time because I found myself in some far distant space, in black space with nothing at all except one very powerful voice, which obviously was going to speak more, but just said, I am. Hmm. What it was going to say after that or whether I am was enough, I'll never know. But I got frightened and returned to my body at that point. And it was an overwhelming experience. Incredible. And you and your mother are both very connected with France, particularly the Cathars and, and with the impulse of Mary Magdalene. Yes, absolutely. About that? Well, because she went to live in that part of France, north, north of Toulouse in the 60s, and stayed there until her death, that was 40 years of every time we went to France, we stayed with them, my mother and father, and we explored the whole of the Cathar country with my mother and took her to places like Monseigneur and all the places that you know. So it was very familiar to me. I even wrote a dissertation when I was at Oxford on one of the Cathar books, age 19. It was something coming back to me, something of great importance and, and interest I had to pay attention to. And my mother was very active. She met people down there who were involved with the Cathars. She had meetings in her house. And she even met a a modern Cathar, uh, a woman who lived up in Brittany. So there was that in the background. And there were these messages, really, which were very important. We'll come to that later on, maybe. My impression is that there's a consistency, really, between the messages of love and the feminine, and which you you find in the Cathars. Well, definitely, because it, it was immediately apparent to me that this was my true church, so to speak. This was where I belonged, and this was the true teaching of Christ, where I'd never warmed to the Christian message at all. I always felt uncomfortable in in Christian services. So here was something which was quite different, which offered love and relationship and service, those three things. Beautiful. It sounds a different note, and of course there's a kind of independent transmission through um, the south and southwest of France, which we're both very familiar with. 
Yes, and also it was such a fantastic civilization compared to the Europe of that time. It was so far in advance, and it was in touch with the um, with the Muslims, with the Jews. Nobody was excluded, and the people who, the troubadours who traveled from castle to castle, they took this teaching of the Grail, or the teaching of the Church of the Holy Spirit, with them as they went, and this and spread from there all over Europe in a hundred years. It hadn't really been heard before, and it was finished by the Inquisition at the end of that hundred years. So it was an extremely important time in history, and also there was St. Francis in Italy, who I think was part of that Cathar church, because it was the same teaching. And there were um, other people, as Dante, all sorts of extraordinary men at that time were teaching people and raising their consciousness and opening out their awareness to a totally different teaching of Christianity. Which is so important for our time and has been elicited through the rediscovery of the Gnostic Gospels. Absolutely. Yes, that added a whole thing. And also the Dead Sea Scrolls, that was another thing of immense importance. Well, we live in a very interesting time from a spiritual point of view. How does your understanding of consciousness influence the way you live? Well, I've always been aware that I've been guided because that really became apparent through the messages. The messages said that I had a, a mission to accomplish in my life, which would take time to evolve, that it wouldn't happen in my youth and middle age, perhaps. Indeed, it's taken to the late 60s of my life before it could come into true fruition. So I've always known that there was this guidance from what my mother called the higher beings, which is as good a term as any. So I've always read and reread those messages. There were not all that many of them. Many of them are on my original website now because I put them up there. And so other people can read them. But they were saying the same thing, that we have to change course. Humanity has to change course. We have to rediscover the feminine principle, particularly the, the Holy Mother. They spoke very often of the Holy Mother of how the Holy Mother is weeping because of the pollution of her waters through nuclear tests and things like that. So they were really on the ball of what's happening to our whole world civilization and what needed to happen if we were to right ourselves and get on the better path again. Yes, it, it struck me that, that the consistency of what you just said. Charlotte and I watched the David Attenborough's new film, and obviously he's coming at this from a naturalist point of view, but it seemed to me that Underlying that was the message of harmonizing with the Great Mother, the returning to the sacred, although that's not the language he would have used. He hasn't used that, no, but, but he is another one who has been born in this time for this particular purpose. I mean, you and I definitely have been born at the right time to reach our maturity now, when we can really do something. We couldn't 40 years ago because A, the world wasn't ready, and B, we weren't. <laughs> um, and, and he's been progressing too all through his life until at 94 he can speak with absolute authority about what he knows about and nobody can say you're talking nonsense because no. he, he's got too much there behind him I've just fixed up net, Netflix today so I'll be able to watch that um, yes it's incredibly powerful you know we've been talking about how do we expand that message I think you wanted also to say something about your travels in India um, yes. After I was 21, I had an unhappy engagement, which had disastrous consequences. And I went to America to escape, really. And then I came back and didn't know what to do with myself. And then I suddenly, again, it was arranged that I should go to Rome. When I was in Rome, I met somebody who had contacts with an encyclopedia of art. They were looking for somebody to travel to the Far East, to go to all the museums in the Far East and, and collect photographs. And they gave me that commission. 
at the age of 25. So that was unbelievable opportunity, and I grabbed it. And so I went, first of all, to India, and then I went to Indonesia, I went to Burma, Thailand, Japan, Taiwan, everywhere except China, which was out of bounds at the mm. time. I had an uncle who was an ambassador in Bangkok at that time, and I got myself a visa through an Indian boyfriend to go to China, and it arrived on his desk, and he uh, summoned me, and he said, what is this? <laughs> you cannot go to China. You'd cause an international incident. You'd have to be rescued, and you, you cannot go, so that's that. So I never went to China, but I have a great love of China and also of Taoism, my interest, a great interest in Taoism. So these were the sort of little salient points going through my life. And this was obviously, although you might not have realized it fully at the time, as much an inner as an outer journey, because it's, you can see again how this is fed into your, your later work. Well, I think it's Jung's concept of individuation. It takes its time. You can't rush it. You have to open like a flower slowly sort of thing, and then gradually the petals close down and you pass on. But you can't suddenly have a full-blown rose at the beginning. And the process of individuation takes a long time, much study, much experience, and much deep feeling of wondering, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing enough? What more could I do? How can I serve more than I am? You know, those are for questions. And with the Jungian analyses, obviously, I was very focused in an introverted kind of life. I didn't have a social life at all. We've never had a social life. So we find ourselves now in our 80s with very, very few friends, except ones like you, who are interested in, in the same thing. And those are the very good and deep friends, and yeah. the ones we really need. One has to make a choice. I couldn't have married a diplomat and had that life if I was going to do this kind of work. Very true. Yes, it, it wouldn't have been enough silence and space. No, absolutely not. And it was just the right person for both of us, very introverted artist. Indeed. I just love uh, Robin's paintings and the way they complement your work. He didn't plan them that way, and he didn't like me saying that. <laughs> uh. But uh, nevertheless, they do complement my work, and we're working at a deep level together. That, that's what's so wonderful. Yes, yes, that's a real alchemical process. And is there a, um, a proverb you live by? Well, when I was in India, I visited the ashram of the great sage Sri Ramana Maharshi. He'd just died a year before, but I stayed with a woman there. My mother was with me on that trip, and we both stayed there for um, a week or two. And we were given his little booklet, a little yellow booklet like that, which said, who am I? Ask yourself that question. Who am I? And never give up until you find the answer. I now know the answer at this great age, but I didn't know it until very recently. But that gave me a focus for my whole life, asking that question. Am I this person born into this social background? Am I this person who's traveled to France and knows about the Cathars? Who am I beyond all that which is connected with the universe? And I love the quote which you give often from Plotinus, the whole universe breathes together. It's a marvelous quote. Absolutely. I think Plotinus had so many wise things to say, uh, and he needs to be um, studied more closely, especially by some of the left hemisphere philosophers who need to understand Absolutely. things more deeply. Yeah. And, and finally, would you have any advice from where you are now to uh, pass on to your younger self? 
well, my younger self is still very much there and sometimes have, has anxiety attacks. <laughs> <laughs> and so then I say to it, look, you're surrounded with love. You are love. Stop fussing and worrying. Everything will unfold as it should. You've done what you can. You've done as much as you could do under the circumstances. So just don't worry anymore. And also still follow the thread of, of what your heart leads you to, what interests you really passionately, whatever it may be. It may be work with horses like my daughter, for instance. That is her passion. It may be art like my husband. It may be politics, whatever. You have to follow your heart. Follow your bliss. That, I think, is just so important. And some of my other guests have also been emphasizing the importance of following your heart, following your path, and being of service in love to the whole. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and insight. Well, thank you, David. It's been a great pleasure.